and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiridoluale. It's our pleasure to have you join us today. There will be many issues posing existential threats to Nigeria, if not well attended to and properly. The state of the nation's finances and some of the economic indices that guide its growth and development will be crucial if its next set of rulers are to succeed. My guest on the program believes that if Nigeria was a private sector company, it would by now have been wound up and pronounced bankrupt. According to my guest, Nigeria's debt profile as against its revenue generation output, amongst others, point firmly in this direction. And its next president must come with detailed, verifiable plans and programs to tackle this challenge. Newsnight talks to the lead director of the Center for Social Justice, Mr. Eze Oyepwere. Mr. Oyekwere, thank you for your time. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. In one of the articles you wrote uh, most recently, you, you pointed out that those who have emerged as uh, presidential candidates of the various parties uh, hoping to contest uh, next year's elections uh, need to speak to some very salient issues. Uh, and many of those issues are economic and that they need to come up with detailed proposals uh, on how they intend to tackle uh, some of these challenges that the country is faced with right now, uh, but which may even be worse uh, by the time that person is taking office on May 29, uh, 2023. Um, let's start off with the one uh, where we talk about Nigeria is broke. Nigeria is on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, and when people say that, or when people hear that, uh, what comes to mind is that we are owing so much, we are not making uh, much money, and the debt overhang uh, keeps uh, rising. What's your view about how we came here? Because someone reminded me a few minutes uh, to the start of this interview that in 2006, which is barely 16 years ago, Nigeria's uh, debt profile was less than uh, uh, $3 billion. And somehow now, it is estimated that by the end of 2022, our debt overhang will be about $100 billion. Yes, let me start by saying that uh, what happened was during the Obasanjo presidency when we had the proverbial debt relief, and uh, we cleared our debts and made it as minimal as possible. Thereafter, in that euphoria, or a little before that time, we've had the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which was enacted, and which sought to introduce prudence and sustainability in the way we manage our debts. And a clear provision in that act says that borrowing should only be for capital expenditure and human development. Okay, you must borrow at a concessionary rate, which is not more than 3% per annum, have a long amortization period, and of course, subject to the approval of the National Assembly. So there we are clear indicators about what borrowing was supposed to be for and what, how you invest the process of money you borrowed. The whole idea, the economic idea, the commonsensical idea, the jurisprudential idea, behind stating that you can only borrow for capital expenditure or human development is clear. That means 
you are only going to borrow for investment or regenerating projects because at the point of borrowing, you must have in mind or be thinking about how, where will I get the money to service this debt or to repay the capital when it is due for repayment. So if you invest in capital expenditure, you are improving and expanding your economy so that investors or the private sector can begin to create more jobs, can begin to create more goods and services, which will ultimately lead to improved corporate taxation, more revenue coming from corporate taxation, and even individual taxes, the taxes individuals pay. And so the economy will be growing. If you look at our contemporary countries we think are in our mid, like South Africa, Egypt, they may have borrowed more money than we've done. But the difference is that they obeyed their law and invested the money in regenerating projects so that at the end of the day, as your debt was increasing, your revenue will also be increasing, which means your ability to repay or to service that debt. In our own case, we have been borrowing for consumption. We've not even invested in human capital. The human capital, like in educational health, which will also help us to improve our economy in terms of producing more and increasing productivity. So in essence, that's how we found ourselves because we simply made the law, signed it up with Funfair, closed it up, locked it in a shelf, and threw away the key. So when you disobey your own rules and guidelines you set down, that is impunity. What led us to the scenario where we are today? You know, we are talking about officially about 41 point something trillion in terms of Naira in debts. And then this 41 point something trillion, about 41.5, does not include the money we took from the central bank through ways and means. And we are owing about 19 trillion from the money we took from the central bank through ways and means, which you don't see on the website of the debt management office. So if you add that 19 trillion to about 41 point something, you get not less than 60.4 trillion in terms of actual indebtedness today. And why you must add that money from the CBN ways and means is that because it's been pending over a period of time, we are now you know, converting them to securities over a long-term period. So we are now treating them as debts properly so-called. And if you also recall, we took these monies from the central bank in defense of the law. The CBN Act says government can only take not more than 5% of their actual revenue for the preceding year in any given year. Therefore, for instance, if the actual revenue of the federal government was, say, $2 trillion, we shouldn't take more than 5% of it. That is, if it was $2 trillion in 2021, if now federal government wants support to plug the deficit, we shouldn't take more than 5% of it. But we have scenarios where the federal government will take at about 40 or 50% of what it earned last year, and as well as going against the rule, which says that you must pay back whatever you took from the CBN within the financial year you took it as soon as possible. And if you don't pay back, the CBN had lost the power to give you any further accommodation in future. So we ignore that aspect of saying, take 5%, we take more than 5%, pay back within the financial year you took it, we don't pay back. CBN has lost the power, we ignore that provision of the law. So everything that happened to our almost being bankrupt today is a situation of impunity, disregard for the rules and regulations laid down in the law. And let me also recall or refresh your memory that as of today, we are using more than 97% of all our income to service debt. We are talking of servicing, not even paying back the capital. The implication 
is that all the money we are using at the federal level for personnel payment of salaries, overhead expenditure, and capital expenditure is borrowed money. And the way we are going, if you look at the debt profile as at the end of 2021, December 2021, we are talking about 39 billion, 39 trillion. By March, it had added another 2 point something trillion to become 41 point something. So averagely, we are adding between 682 to 700 billion naira every month to add the profile. So going by the way these things are accumulating on a daily basis, and when you also look at the kind of deficit we are running in 2022, 4 trillion alone for consumption to pay for a subsidy. So you can know that before the end of this year, it is possible our debt service requirements will be more than the actual revenue that will come in. And we may use all of it or even borrow a little bit more to be able to service debt. So before the president leaves in May next year, I know for sure that we will have a debt profile of not less than 130, between 130 and 150 billion, not just 100 you are talking of, because we already, we've already hit the 100. So that's the, the critical the, challenge the, 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 the we have The situation you mentioned, especially as it comes, uh, because towards the tail end of your description there, you talked about subsidies, and indeed you're, uh, you're, you're, you're correct when you mentioned that uh, 4 trillion as a provision was made uh, in 2022 as subsidies uh, for petroleum products. Uh, this does not include uh, uh, what has now happened since that provision was made, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the way energy prices have gone. So by the records, as at the end of May, we had already spent about 2.2 trillion naira uh, of that money on subsidies because the prices have gone uh, way higher and that's why we're talking about diesel at uh, 850 naira, uh, kerosene at 800 naira per liter, uh, the only one that seems to have escaped this rise is petrol and is being held down by this subsidy. So let, let's zero in a bit on the subsidy matter and some of the calculations here. Plenty of people have raised questions oh. about how it is being calculated, uh, not just the fact that we are subsidizing, but how it is being calculated. Uh, uh, the amount of consumption of petroleum products uh, that we are recording has gone way up, and yet the economy is in a tailspin. So Nigeria would probably be one of the few countries in the world where those two things are happening side by side. Usually it's not like that. What do you make of it? Okay, just to conclude that uh, debt challenge, if Nigeria were actually a private concern, the creditors will have come up to wind up the company because uh, definitely they are no longer in a position. Those companies will no longer be in a position to actually service uh, their debts or to even take up their daily outgoings. So it's a question of the sovereign nature of who is owing. That's why we are where we are. Now, getting to the fuel subsidy palaver, I think that we need to just simply state the facts as they are. If you recall, in the days before 2015, an NPC was claiming subsidy on about 35 million liters a day. And that was during the period Nigerians shouted at the rooftops that there was a lot of corruption in the subsidy regime. So quickly, the National Assembly set up groups. The executive through the president and Okonji Wala then set up groups. All of you remember the Aigi Mokode committee? All yes. of them came out with one conclusion that the 35 million liters then were simply uh, inflated figures. So the impression Nigerians got reading through the proofs was that both the one in the House of Reps and Senate was that 
ideally we should be doing maybe around between 20 and 25 million liters a day. And the turn on top of it was a job for the boys because it was established that people claimed subsidy fraudulently with just papers, letters of credit papers, nobody saw the ships coming. So after that, that was established. Now, fast forward, we've had two recessions, two recessions since then, massive factory closures, high unemployment, the highest unemployment rate since our independent history. And of course, terrorists uh, everywhere stopping people from farming. Now, factory closures should mean that energy demand should come down a little. Massive unemployment should also mean that these people, when they were employed, they were demanding more energy than what they're demanding today. So moving up from 35 million liters a day to now 60, 65 million liters, indeed in one month last year, they claimed 80 something million liters. At some point, they even claimed 101 million liters. Now the challenge is that what they're claiming is clearly, clearly fraudulent. Indeed, 65 million liters may be what the whole of West Africa needs to power itself. So the additional 30, 35, or close to 40 with that claiming has no empirical, there's no empirical evidence to back it up. So that's where the problem lies. So if you, we were to be dealing with subsidy at the quantum we were talking about before, 25, 30 million liters, although it is not the best way to go, it could have been manageable for us to say, okay, let's, let's manage it, it's a trillion, a trillion plus. But to talk about four trillion already provided, and from the statistics you've supplied, may not even be enough, then this is a very, very dangerous situation. So I believe that the managers of an NPC, the Minister of State for Petroleum, and the Senior Minister for Petroleum, which is the President himself, have to convince Nigerians, have to account for how they arrived at these figures. So that is the critical challenge. And of course, they have deferred the implementation of that part of the Petroleum Industry Act, which says remove subsidy, deregulate everything, and let the private sector take control. Now, there ought to be a way forward in this things. If you look at the level of inflation, look at the level of impoverishment of Nigerians, yes, we want the PIA implemented, but we, I don't think the average Nigerian can absorb maybe paying for 500 naira per liter of uh, petrol today. If you look at the prices, if you have brothers and sisters in Europe, America, and Canada, if they tell you how much the pump price have gone up. So some of us are believing that, yes, we must implement the PIE, but already they are doing swaps. Let the domestic refining capacity come on board. Let us have more modular refineries. Let us ask questions. What exactly is holding back this Dangote refinery we've been hearing about for the last couple of years? get it on stream, we can as well look at what exactly we need for local consumption, sell it to him or the other refineries at a, a little cost above the margin. Don't just say, oh, crude oil price is $110 in the international market. Maybe let the person get it at uh, between 40 and 50. And he mark that as soon as it's refined for domestic consumption. And that will not be part of our OPEC quota. So there will be a win-win scenario Government will stop the massive importation, the huge amount of money they're spending in importing refined products. Nigerians will still enjoy these refined products at maybe a little price higher than what is today, but not just to have it times three or times four, because that will lead to a social crisis. So that's the way we are thinking that things going forward should be. 
And whoever is coming into power, whoever is dreaming to be the president of Nigeria and does not understand that these are critical challenges because the way we have people dreaming to be president tells me that some of them don't understand the gravity of the challenges at hand. What is going to happen is like a little child that is going to collect hot burning coal without any protection on his or her bare hands. So he needs to be prepared how he will quickly rush and dip his hand into water to be able to cool the situation. Because the way we are going, we'll possibly have a huge, huge economic crisis. Already, our euro bonds are not, which we started with about 6% per annum as interest rate. I understand they are doing double digit of about 11, 12 today. So even the international community, the confidence in us, the confidence in our economy is gone. So we are simply marking time before it gets to a stage where we could simply be talking about 30, 40% inflation, the kind of Zimbabwe and Turkey ideas that we are hearing. But I pray and hope that Nigerians will be discerning enough to make the right choices for us to avoid that going forward. One of the challenges we will also face, um, or we are facing already, and which will become uh, even more apparent, is the one of revenue. Uh, there was the Finance uh, uh, Act uh, of 2021, uh, which was supposed to help government uh, uh, streamline its revenue sources and generate even more revenue to be able to plug some of these, uh, uh, these gaps that we have identified and fund some of uh, the projects. Uh, but there are those who have said, well, Nigeria doesn't really have a, a debt problem when people like you uh, and I discussed the, uh, the debt problem, that what we have is a revenue problem. And so if we now focus on the revenue side of things, uh, we are not generating much because partly uh, our industries are shutting down because of the various uh, inclement uh, weather characteristics in the business environment. Uh, and then there is massive unemployment uh, uh, as the statistics from even the government's own agency uh, uh, shows. So what are we doing wrong in terms of that? Because a lot of people also say, yes, um, we cannot blame government for wanting to increase its revenue profile, but it needs to do certain things to make the people believe that they have a stake in helping to increase that revenue profile, principally by paying taxes. Well, I think that some of the steps they took in the Finance Act are good steps that could be commended, but there are more fundamental challenges. Going back to the debt issue you mentioned, relationship between debt and revenue. That's why I made that point that because we are borrowing in defense of the law, we did not apply the process of borrowing correctly. And so in the process, normally as you borrow more so we, and invest in the proper sectors, so will your revenue increase. But since we are borrowing for consumption, our revenue has been stagnated and at some point in time it appears it's even going back. And so that's why we are not making enough revenue to be able to pay our debts. But then, beyond the few measures they put in the uh, Finance Act, there are some fundamental uh, reforms which some of us have recommended and which is not being done. You don't trumpet issues around a Treasury single account for the fun of trumpeting it. For instance, if you look at the Auditor General's report, most of the government-owned corporations and the agencies and the parastatals that should return the operating surplus, there is a huge discrepancy between what they're returning to Treasury and what the Auditor General says they should return. So every year you have about between one, two to three trillion that should have been returned to Treasury that is not returned to Treasury. 
And for me, I think that getting this money returned is a critical step for us to begin to be rebuild our revenue. Before we think of borrowing, let us also plug all the leaking pipes of corruption. So what some of us have advocated is that don't simply ask these people to give you their surplus at the end of the year. Put them on the equivalent of TSA that is domesticated for their own operations without hindering their day-to-day -day performance. Where all their income and expenditure will be available for the accountant general of the Federation and those in the budget office to see. So it is not going to be a remittance waiting for them at the end of the year to now do their audit and maybe manipulate a few things and begin to say, okay, we only have a 50 billion operating surplus left. At the point they are getting this money and spending, you, once it is that particular percentage, you take government takes what belongs to it. So it's more or less like you take it as source. And then if you, whatever you've taken in a quarter, if they have a challenge with what you've taken and they're thinking you took more than you should have taken, a committee should be set up to harmonize and resolve the discrepancies. So it is not a question of leaving them at the end of the year for them to bring up. And each time that the Auditor General will put this report, nothing happens. Nobody is recovering this money. All kinds of stories are told. They go to the Public Accounts Committee. You hear of it once or twice. The next year, the same thing happens and repeats itself. So I believe, yes, they've taken some measures, but much more measures need to be taken to be able, you know, for us to plug these leaking pipes. Also, you look at some of the funds you have in the budget, like uh, we have Naseni now being, so, uh, uh, being charged on the Consolidated Revenue Fund, 1% of the CRF going. We need to begin to ask, yes, you are now getting this money. Are you doing research and development? How are you contributing? We also have some other monies, the UBEC funds, the education, the basic healthcare provision funds. We need to begin to see how critically those monies are being used. So in essence, we have to start by plugging the leaking pipes of corruption. And then whatever taxes, new taxes that are created or whatever, we account for them scrupulously and meticulously. And after we've done this, we can now begin to see whatever we need more. For instance, we talked about managing the fuel subsidy very well. It's possible that by the time we clean up that system, we will need less than two trillion every year to do the subsidy. And by the time we begin to do the local swaps in terms of local refining capacity that's been built, then we could possibly be doing less than one trillion. And then we will ask critically questions. Minister, Mr. Minister of Petroleum, you've said you've given out $1.5 billion in contract for turnaround maintenance of whichever refinery. When are they really going to be turned around? Give us value for the money. Because this is what we've been doing over the years. Every year we give a turnaround maintenance, and at the end of the year, nothing gets turned around except the pocket of those who are awarded the contract and those who are doing the contract. So refineries don't get turned around, but people get their personal incomes and personal emoluments or personal revenue turned around, and they get away with it, and nobody gets prosecuted. Nobody even talks anything about it. So I think that is part of the way we can begin to plug the pipes one after the other, and then that will mean a reduction in the money we will need to borrow. So instead of looking for five, six trillion to borrow, we may discover that we need to borrow only one or two. So that becomes much more manageable in terms of repayment and in the future. And then you target the borrowing to regenerative sources, which will now help us to create jobs and create revenue in the future. One of the things that seems to make it almost intractable uh, in terms of being able to plug leakages and uh, get people who have infracted rules and regulations uh, to toe the path of uh, 
uh, uh, rectitude is the fact that there is poor oversight. And now that brings me to something that you uh, have been passionate about as well, which is the work of the National Assembly, particularly at the federal level and then the state assemblies at the state level. They are supposed to be the ones who, having done the appropriation of money for the various sectors, uh, they know how much is in each sector. They are supposed to cross-check and get uh, the information that ensures that there is value for money. But there are two points here. There is the poor oversight, uh, which is widely reported. But then there is also the question about even the budgetary process that the National Assembly itself uh, undertakes, which allows for uh, uh, items, line items to be put under two different headings, the same item appearing year after year in the budgets without being removed and without being updated, and then people cross-checking that those things have in fact been done, or if they haven't, what has happened. You have referenced the Public Accounts Committee with the reference to audits uh, of government agencies. So it comes to the issue of budgeting. So much fanfare was made when the budget cycle moved uh, to January to December. But people like you pointed out that that was semantics. In reality, nothing has changed. Uh, what is commonly referred to as uh, budget padding still goes on, which is that you put different items uh, under different headings, and because nobody is really looking, uh, uh, those items get to be passed, and the monies are withdrawn and spent, and no account is given of it. So in terms of the budgetary circle, how much of a damage uh, is being done, one, and then two, somebody coming in, who wants to be president, who wants to be governor, and so on. What should they be looking at uh, to turn this uh, state of affairs around? Well, I think that the reforms should start from the presidency or from at the state level from the governor's office. If you look at what happens at the federal level, every year from the presidency, they tell you they're looking for four or five billion to repair the electrical installations in the state house as if to say they spoil on a yearly basis they tell you they're looking for three four five billion to you know patch up the roofs and you know amounts of money that will more or less build a very big new structure so when this kind of thing is repeatedly done and uh, it's been pointed out several times by many civil society organizations including ours where we publish a pullout a yearly pullout of frivolous inappropriate illegal and wasteful expenditure. We publish this, serve it on the authorities, give it to the members of the National Assembly, and anything goes. You still see most of them at the final approved budget. So I think it's about the character of our democracy in terms of the quality of human beings who are in these MDAs preparing the budgets and the quality of the human beings who are approving them at the level of the National Assembly because they cannot claim that they do not see these frivolities on their own. And beyond seeing it on their own, many think tanks and groups are reminding them through publications, through various fora on a year-to-year -year basis. So it's a question of a corrupt system that has been institutionalized. By the way, just look at the recent revelation about the Accountant General of the Federation, the former one who EFCC started with an allegation of 80 billion and ended up telling us about 170 billion. It's been granted bail. Nothing has been heard about that for the past two, three, four, five weeks. And even the one who came acting has also been removed for corruption. So you begin to ask yourself, with the e-payment system in place, with the position of the accountant general, how come 
the Accountant General is in a position to have access to such amount of money, considering that his office is not a productive office where you are saying, for instance, there is a very huge vote for him to manage. So these are questions of clear leaks in the system. It only takes somebody with nobility of volition, somebody who has a good mind to be able to block the system because no matter how much you introduce digitization and computerization, there's always somebody in charge of the back end. So that's the challenge. So if you have a president who actually doesn't mouth the anti-corruption mantra for the purpose of gaining votes, who says, I will not take anything, I will not chop in the popular street lingo, I know go chop. Once he's not chopping and not ready to chop, it's not going to be easy for anybody around him because once he catches anybody doing that, he could definitely deal with the person. But what we've had of late is that there's a lot of claim to sainthood, a lot of claim to reform the system, a lot of claim to fight corruption, but you can't match it with the actual day-to-day -day practice of what they do at the highest levels of government, whether it's in the presidency or in the National Assembly. So it's also about the quality of the people we are going to elect. And I also think that at the level of civil society and the media, the populist level, we should not continue this level of docility. We are looking for money for us to go back to school. And it was reported that somebody, just one person alone, has to account for about 170 billion. And for the past three weeks, everybody has kept quiet. We should all be begging for him to be brought to trial. Yes, it's an allegation. But the way we are going very soon, we may forget about that. And then we move on with life. So it, this is beyond what the laws you put in books. This is beyond policies you make. This is beyond regulations. It's about enforcing them. Who is there? What is the character? What is the quality of the person you are bringing as the person in oversight? Who is the attorney general? What is he doing? Who is your solicitor general? All those things are critical. Who is in charge of the police? The people to do investigation. What is the EFCC and the ICPC doing? All right? And of course, you now track it back to the judiciary because everything in Nigeria today is like a chain. So the whole system is rotten that if you want to reform one side without thinking of the others, you create a very huge problem because you can even bring all up all the good investigation and dump it into our court system, the kind of court system we have today, and the case will be there for the next five, six years until the person you are charging, if he's an old man in his late 60s, 70s, before you could conclude the case, God may decide to ask him to come over to the other side, and that's the end of it. Or it will be even forgotten. Witnesses can come up again, they've forgotten what has happened. Or after some time, people will say, well, why are you coming to testify against this man? Do you have any personal problem with him? But things are better served hot. There's this allegation. In the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven months, one year, the case is done with. And then we see punishment following a crime. Because the, the, the thing that is happening today is that nobody is punished because of his crime. So the next person who wants to copy what the accused person had done will feel free because he believes you can simply get away with whatever. You can steal a few billions, get away with it. Or even if they bring you to trial, you could have stolen 10 billion and you part with one or two to settle the matter and you go and enjoy the loot, the loot forever thereafter. So that's the critical challenge. That brings me to the cost of governance, uh, which is something else that has been repeatedly spoken about. Uh, some have pointed to our system of government that is too detailed. There are too many institutions. Uh, in fact, at the point, uh, there was a, a panel. The Orosoye Committee was set up to uh, uh, streamline some of the uh, MDAs in Nigeria. Uh, that got bogged down in politics, although the government now uh, is uh, resuscitating the panel work uh, for implementation 
uh, as part of reducing the cost of governance. But first of all, do you think that uh, anyone who is coming into authority, and I know you've spoken about the fact that reforms must begin from the governor's office or from the presidency in the case of the federal level, do you think that our democratic structure or our government structure is too heavy? There are too many institutions and too many people are employed uh, uh, in government and by government and that there is a process, there's a need to systematically reduce this. And why is it so difficult to do? Because we have been talking about this since uh, uh, this uh, uh, republic started in 1999 and 22 years on or 23 years on, we still have not made uh, much headway. The costs, rather than come down, are going up. My answer is two-pronged. If you look at the figures in some developed societies that you have governments employing, or the kind of challenges we have in Nigeria, you could generally say the government is not overstaffed. But on the other side, the Rasanya Committee was right in looking out for agencies that are duplicated, and you know, overstaffing and just people on the payroll who are not productive and who are delivering little or nothing. So overall in the bureaucracy, I will say there is a need to bring down the cost of governance, not just in the general bureaucracy, but also places like the National Assembly where we can make do with a, just one house instead of the Senate and, and of course reducing the numbers so that we have a more productive uh, uh, National Assembly. And of course, bringing down the number of uh, special advisors and all kinds of things you have at the presidency. But then there is an area where we may even need much more personnel, like the security agencies, like the police. We don't have enough police to go around to adequately police Nigeria. So while we are reducing at one end, the bureaucrats, people who sit down in the office, come in by 11, leave by one or two, do nothing, contribute to nothing, or even agencies that are doing the same task, we may need to recruit more on some other sectors, like I've told you, in policing for us to be able to be secured. And of course, recruiting more may not necessarily be at the federal level. I'm hoping that uh, we'll definitely have state police at the end of the day so that those recruitments will be more at the local level. And of course, if you are, the federal government is uh, divesting powers to those at the local level, also the resources will be shared out more equitably that the states can begin to take care of this thing. So, Overall, issues around reducing the cost of governance can quite very well be handled at the federal level and at the level of some states, but there are also areas where we need to beef up for us to be able to run a proper country where you have sovereignty, where you have a government in full control of its territory, not this one we are doing where it appears some people are in control of certain parts of Nigeria, People can simply come and attack a correctional center or do something for three, four hours. And at the end of three hours, they all go away and you say you've repelled them. You couldn't have repelled somebody who has achieved this objective. So that's the way I look at it. A Rosanya committee report needs to be dusted up and appropriating done to cut down the cost of governance. But beyond that, the kind of pecks of office we see enjoyed by governors who are in the National Assembly and still drawing Humungo's uh, pensions, those pensions should go. There's no reason why you work for four years or eight years and you enjoy that kind of Humungo's pension for life. And some of them are enjoying it while still being paid by the federal government at the National Assembly. There's no part of the world where you have somebody 
driving 12, 15, 30 cars in his convoy, wasting fuel and, you know, all kinds of dramatic things, flying presidential aircrafts all over the place. These are things that need to be cut down. At least they can save some little money for us to be able to attend to more critical sectors. That, that then uh, brings me to uh, the process by which the leadership that may address uh, some of these uh, uh, challenges emerge and the overwhelming, you referenced it in uh, uh, your answer to the last question where you talked about attack on correctional facilities. Uh, that is a symptom of a much bigger problem uh, because the facility you are referring to is Kuje Prisons, which is in the nation's capital. Uh, it's a few kilometers from the center of the nation's capital. And uh, that would be, for some people, the height of what has been happening. There have been attacks elsewhere, in Akure, in uh, Ibadan, in Oweri, uh, in Jaws, several other places uh, right across the country, if you zero in on correctional facilities. But then if you talk about the general state of insecurity, Many of the things that we have talked about here, raising the country's revenue profile, attending to cost of governance, reducing wastages, and so on, is all tied, some would also point out, to the state of security. When people cannot move around freely, um, many of these things cannot be attended to. Do, do you see a sense in which those who are angling to be president or governor or any of the other, that they understand some of these things from what they are saying or what they have said so far as being uh, what one would describe as their manifesto. Yes, security is very fundamental for the developmental process to move on or for the economy to resume its normal growth. At least, for instance, even the high price of food today, the food inflation we are facing is a product of... Uh, Farmers being unable to go back to their farms either to uh, plant uh, crops or to harvest the ones and process the ones that they've already planted. So I believe that whoever is angling to be the president of Nigeria should understand the scenario very well and also have strategic plans on how to address some of these issues. By the way, let me make a starting point that uh, the security situation, as some of our security agents will present it, they will tell you, oh, it's technical. Some of these things are beyond technicality because there are questions, commonsensical questions that should be asked and answered. For instance, if the Kuja prison attack was reported to have gone on for two hours, three hours, and there was no reinforcement, you know, to take the bandits out, come on, tell me, what is the distance of the nearest barracks to the Kuja prison? How many hours should it take for soldiers to move or for an aircraft, a helicopter gunship, or something to be scrambled to move around. And we are told 100 to 300 persons were motorbikes and drove down to a correctional center. When they finished, they also went the same way. Does it take being a special soldier or an intelligence chief to know that even if I were there, I'm in charge, and information reaches me 30 minutes within that path, that if there was enough reinforcement from air and the ground, that these people would have been taken out? So why should anybody tell us there is so much technicality in doing this? So what I expect is that beyond the huge money, which have been budgeted for security over the years, whoever is coming in should select people who are of impeccable character and who can deploy common sense, because this thing is beyond any technicality. It's a matter of common sense. Who can deploy common sense 
react at the earliest opportunity. If somebody is doing an attack for uh, three hours and he goes in the first 30 minutes, some, he, there's massive reinforcement to overpower them, they will definitely run away. You will arrest many of them, you will take out many of them, and those they come to rescue, come to rescue, nobody will be able to rescue them. You capture them back. Just like uh, you are talking of correctional facility, you remember the one that happened in Owerri, they were saying, oh, IPOB, ABCD did this. If you know where the prison in Owerri is located, right at the back of it is DSS headquarters. Just between a space of 100, 200 meters, you have government house, you have DSS headquarters, you have prison, you have police headquarters. Less than five, 10 minutes drive is Obinze barracks, and we are discussing something happening around 2 a.m. when there will even be no traffic that soldiers coming in in 10, 15 minutes could just be there. And that this gentleman operated for how many hours, two, three hours, and left unchallenged, took away prisoners and this thing, what does it tell you? Where is the report? And what has the authorities done to act on that report over a year or two ago? Okay, so some of these things that are happening are clearly what a reasonable man could say that those in charge should be dragged in and questioned. They should be questioned how these things are happening. You have government house, you have DSS at the back, you have uh, prisons, you have police headquarters, and DSS said, we got information before this attack happened in Owari, and we told authorities. And nobody has been questioned to say, yes, they gave you this information, what did you do? You sat on it, and then you were quick to say, oh, is IPOB, is A or B or C. Why did you not stop them from attacking? or even why they were attacking. Why couldn't they be arrested or taken out? So these are simple questions. We don't need anybody to start telling us, oh, there's any technical or complex issue. People are simply refusing to do their duties, and nobody is holding them to account. So I expect the next president or whoever will be sworn in, you'll get the right men to do the job. Any of them that you know, compromises or takes any questionable decision, you remove the person, not just removing him, set up a high-powered proof, if found culpable, prosecute the person according to the rules of uh, whatever services, send the person to jail, or deal with the person. Everybody will sit up. We can't continue. It's becoming childish. It's becoming childish. You remember the last time we had an attack in Abuja, that kind of thing, was like somebody took a bomb to the UN building. So it wasn't even to take territory. You knew you couldn't take the territory, so you drove a car, took a bomb, so that you killed persons or maybe die in the process. But this one is that people came, took up a high-caliber prison where you had high-caliber people that belonging to, to the insurgents, and they operated for hours and then left. And somebody is coming to tell me we're on top of the situation. What are you on top of? On top of a situation when people have been freed from where you are supposed to hold them. So I don't want to believe there's any magic formula. I don't want to believe there is anything special. It is about people doing their work and common sense prevailing now, if I give you money to do an assignment and you fail woefully, I will remove you. You will likely face prosecution so that the next person takes off his task in a very serious manner. I, uh, many of this, uh, I mean, I want to link it. I mean, coming from the correctional facilities, many of those facilities and many of the uh, uh, security challenges uh, that the nation faces are in states uh, um, and sub-national uh, uh, jurisdictions. So that brings me, many people have said, with the possible exception of uh, uh, Lagos State um, and possibly Rivers, uh, depending on the metric that you use, 
the rest of Nigeria uh, uh, in terms of states and local governments are insolvent. Uh, they cannot survive on their own uh, without uh, the feeding bottle of federal allocations. And that even now, even with the federal allocations, uh, many of them are barely uh, uh, able to function as government. So at that level, do you again, I mean, looking at it as a point of something that people who are seeking office uh, uh, next year are coming in, do you see uh, them looking at this in any tactical manner? Because if many of the states are insolvent, uh, the workforce of the states combined is more than that of the federal government. Uh, the security challenges in many of the states uh, are also multifarious, and some of them are indigenous to the states. So if we take the various things we have talked about, the states have a huge debt profile uh, themselves. I mean, outside of the federal government, uh, they, the states themselves have a huge debt profile. So this insolvency argument and uh, revenue challenge for the states is there anyone looking at that? What should they be looking at? So I, I think the critical challenge at the states is a more or less that many of the administrations we have at the state level can be described as economic bandits. Economic banditry is happening in most states across Nigeria. If you even look at their debt profile, the same questions I raised about where were these monies invested. You should borrow for investment. You see a state that is highly indebted. There's basically no infrastructure. Workers are being owed. So the starting point is to either elect fresh or re-elect capable hands who are simply not being mischievous. Those debt shouldn't have been there in the first place. Now, if you have people who manage the resources well at the state level, I think many of these challenges of saying that insolvent will be solved. First of all, by the time you are devolving these powers to the states, it will also mean devolving the revenue, you know, rearticulating the revenue sharing formula in such a way that it will also give the states who you are passing on more responsibilities, more money. And then they can improve their IGR system. In many of these states, they have local capacities to generate revenue, which some of them are not doing or even in some states that are doing it, they are not accounting for it. Those who are supposed to be generating this revenue are simply pocketing the money. So I don't believe there is any state that, if properly managed in Nigeria, will not be able to take care of its responsibilities. Mind you, by the time we are talking about these things, things like the federal VAT will go, you do your sales tax in your own state. And there will be a competitive federalism where nobody will simply be looking over his brother's shoulders only to think of the crude oil drop from the boils of the Niger Delta. Nobody thinks beyond that. And then the gold that is causing so much wahala in Zamfara, Casina, nobody is talking about what does it contribute to the national treasury, little or nothing. Then you go back to your state and as your resources. And if you want to allow bandits to take it, so be it for you. And by the time people in that state watch the state collapsing, they will definitely know what to do, either by impeaching the governor or if it is close to election, telling me you can't continue doing this. So we need to allow people to learn from their experience, to take concrete decisions that talk about responsibility. It's not just enough for you to say you are a governor 
And by the time you stay one year, you are not paying salaries. People will definitely chase you out of government house. So I see that happening. Mr. Eze Oyenkwere, thank you so much for your perspective and for your time on the program today. Thank you for, for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com forward slash podcast to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Duluali. Goodbye. <laughs>